sometimes when I'm working, I have the second monitor where I have this endless stream of content just playing in the background. One of the staples of the second monitor programming is the YouTube channel of Bon Appetit magazine. The channel has 6 million subscribers, and it features a whimsical cast of professional chefs who develop, test, and demonstrate recipes on camera. The videos are charming and candid, but informational. They give off the vibe of an unproblematic reality show where everyone's talented and inclusive and friendly. About a month ago, the giant fan base of the show blew up as a series of events revealed racism in the publication. Manifest in many ways, including the fact that the non-white cast members slash chefs were not getting compensated for video work. Sola El Wiley, who's one of the cast members, put the show and the publication on blast in her Instagram stories, and shortly after they went live, the editor-in-chief and head of video of BA quit. These events made me think about what happens when I consume content faster than I can meaningfully engage with it. But it also made me think about the BA test kitchen, in its light-flooded, white-walled stainless steel aesthetic. I wondered how much of the success of the videos can be attributed to the test kitchen. What does the design tell us about the artistic vision of the magazine, and when did they move into this now infamous kitchen? These questions led me to another test kitchen, one that in its chromatic, psychedelic, saturated glory fostered a very different culture and set of recipes. It's my delight today to dive into the world of the Ebony Magazine test kitchen. Welcome back to Full Hose. This is a place where I talk about architecture as it relates to things that are happening right now. My name is Horsheed, and the hose won't love me unless I speak Latin. Do you have a minute? I came over to ask if you had time to temper chocolate at some point. Hey, Sola, can I ask you a question about technique real quick? Hey, Sola, how do you say, how do you say this? Turmeric. What kind of, what, what temperature are we looking at, Sola? Uh, Sola. You just called me Sola at Oh my God, Rhea, sorry. Oh my God, I'm sorry. A test kitchen is a kitchen used for the process of developing new recipes or kinds of food. It's built at research and development departments of food companies like General Mills, Betty Crocker Test Kitchens, for example, or at media companies that publish culinary magazines. Condé Nast, described by the New York Times as a company built partly on selling a glossy brand of elitism to the masses, publishes magazines like Vogue, GQ, and Architectural Digest, as well as Bon Appetit. The company rents floors 20 to 41 of the SOM-designed One World Trade Center in Manhattan, New York. The BA Test Kitchen is located on the 35th floor facing Calatrava's Oculus. The Test Kitchen is an industrial-sized 2,000 square feet with four islands in the middle. The southeast face of the kitchen on the long side is lined with large windows that pour light into the space. On the opposite side from the windows are eight large gas range stoves. White subway tiles, white Calicutta marble countertops, and stainless steel appliances make up the material palette of the space. The BA Test Kitchen was not always the Gensler-designed interior it is today. 
Before the video success days, the headquarters of Condé Nast was located at 4 Times Square in Midtown Manhattan, where giant LED signs obstructed the path of natural light to the interiors. In fact, in 2013, right before the move to the new, old stainless steel test kitchen, Bon Appetit published this note on their website. We're moving our offices, so we've been thinking about how we want our new digs designed. And right now, the 1972 test kitchen from Ebony's Chicago offices is at the very top of our Just Copy This list. Can you imagine how great the recipes would be coming out of that impeccably groovy setup? Our test kitchen looks pretty good right now. Very professional, a lot of stainless steel and white cabinets. But it can't really compete with curved countertops and psychedelic walls. Now, there are some of us who are not just temperamentally suited to be only vice presidents. We want to be presidents. We want to run things. We want to be in charge. For those people, I say, you've got to go out and start your own. You're walking down South Michigan Avenue. On your left, across a few lanes of traffic, are the snow-covered trees of Grant Park. It's been an okay Chicago winter. You have a lot of layers on. You walk away from the edge of the sidewalk so the brown slush from the road doesn't get on your shoes. As you keep walking, you begin to see it on your right. The concrete modernist 11-story building of Johnson Publishing Company. This is the Ebony Jet Building. The brainchild of John Matusami, the architect, and Arthur Elrod and William Reiser, the interior designers. It's where John H. Johnson and Eunice Johnson lead their flagship publication, Ebony. The horizontal bands of the floor slabs are very thick and expressed. Two prominent columns are recessed further in from the plane of the facade and run the full height of the building. The ribbon windows are recessed even further, hovering behind the two columns. As you approach the entrance, you notice the sidewalk under your feet clear of all ice and salt. Right in front of the lobby, this part of the sidewalk is heated. Underneath the double-height canopy of the entrance of the building, you reach for the glass doors and walk in. The lobby is a grand 18 foot tall. The walls are a two-layered dark bronze in the back and large filleted Mozambique wood panels in the front. On your right in the sitting area is a large red leather curved sectional couch. If you look to the left, the red leather matches the detail on the reception desk. Wave hi at the security officer, he's expecting you, and head for the elevators. You're headed to the 10th floor. This is the most fun, vibrant floor in the building. It's where the banquet halls are for special guests, celebrities and presidents. It's also where the cafeteria is, where employees can eat for a dollar a lunch. I've heard they have amazing fried catfish on Fridays. Most people that would come in, they would always come over to the test kitchen to see what was going on. Sometimes if you weren't looking up, you look up and it could be any entertainer, you know, uh, and they would want, always want to know what were you doing in the test kitchen. And sometimes, you know, if you were cooking something, they may want to taste it, you know. As you step out of the elevator, you step onto a basket weave carpet. Graphically, in one direction, the weave is gold with black trims, and in the other direction, it's orange with a thick white stripe in the middle. This is all on the backdrop of eggplant purple. You look up from the floor... And straight ahead, the first thing you see is a yellow wall with grass cloth wallpaper and a long horizontal rectangular window right in the middle of it. You might have to bend down a little, but through the window, you'll see an orange fridge on the left 
and a swirly-twirly yellow-orange-purple pattern on all the cabinets. This is where Charlotte Lyons tests recipes for the magazine. Well, first of all, I saw the test kitchen when I interviewed with Ebony. That was my first time seeing it, and, and my first impression was, wow, you know, with the purple and the orange and the swirls, so, you know, vibrant colors and things. But the whole building had a lot of vibrant colors. I don't know, you know, they were a lot of oranges, pink. Everything was really kind of custom, you know. I thought it was just a really, really unique kitchen. She says you can step inside. You enter on the left through a glass door with the JPC logo on it. You walk into a little dining nook. There's avocado green walls and bookshelves full of culinary books. There's a built-in seat in the shape of a boomerang, which has yellow vinyl padding. And there's a little hexagonal avocado green table tucked into the bend of the boomerang. When the presidents would come, a lot of times the Secret Service would come in my office because it was always coffee and stuff. You know, they would ask if they could use my computer or they would come and they would sit in that nook area because they would always block off uh, one of the elevators so that if he had to leave, he could, you know, and they would install a red telephone in the, uh, I think it was the South Dining Room. And they would always come in and they would sit there and have their coffee because they could see who was coming up, you know, everything from there. So everybody loved the test kitchen. The dining nook is also where another editor, Charlotte Draper, proofreads recipes for a column she started. Reader favorite recipe, which I developed to help, you know, get the readers a little more actively involved in embracing what we were doing in the food section. And each month I would ask the reader, please send us your favorite recipe for peach cobbler. And once the recipes would come in, I would read through them and call it down to no more than 20 at the most. She would then test the recipes. And once she knew that they worked, she would invite other employees of the magazine to come by for a tasting, maybe before lunch at the cafeteria, and cast their vote. We would print the recipe and the name of the person who had sent the recipe in. And then that person also would receive a cash award in addition to the uh, notoriety of being featured in Ebony. Charlotte has developed a technique for evolving recipes that come with family and cultural history. Often people, they don't write the recipes down and they might say, she, my grandmother might say, oh, I don't know. I just add it until I know that it's right. I call those vibration cooks. So you have to be able to translate what a vibration cook shares into a common language in terms of recipes and cooking. Really in terms of passing the recipe heritage down, the best way to do it is to get in the kitchen and cook with the person you're trying to get the recipe from. To enter the actual kitchen, you turn right from the dining nook. In the middle of the kitchen is an island with cooktops in the shape of a truncated ellipse. Above it is a metal hood with cabinets. The hood is hung from a plastic drop ceiling that covers fluorescent lights above, making a diffused light source. The translucent plastic drop ceiling has a pattern of tiny circles that are embossed on the surface. Now, for the continuous, seamless twirly pattern. That's a fabric laminated in plastic that gets attached to the walls and cabinets like a sticker. Unlike other buildings that are highly custom, with original furniture and fixtures and finishes, the Johnson Publishing Building actually was designed with maintenance in mind. Sylvester Briggs is in charge of keeping up with the architecture. 
on the fourth floor, there were several storage rooms and they had extra pieces or rolls of carpet, you know, for replacement, you know, because the carpet was real unique also. And they had uh, some more of the wallpaper, you know, they had extra everything. And in terms of kitchen appliances, there's only state-of-the-art built-in appliances. There are built-in Thermador can openers, general electric oven, microwave, two dishwashers, trash compactor, toaster, and griddle. Now there's also an appliance called the Ronson Foodmatic, right across from where you're standing next to the oven. There's a small stainless steel panel that's flush with the counter. If you walk up to it and press lightly, the panel opens up and a little machine with a control panel and a mixer base pops up. Now if you look at the cupboard underneath, You'll find a blender, a shredder, a grinder, a grater, an ice cream churner, and a juicer. Depending on what you're trying to do, you can plug any of those into the base and press the control panel to start. Lee Bay, thank you so much for joining us. You're an architectural critic, author, journalist, photographer. Can you tell us about your journey with Matusami's Johnson Publishing Building? What did it mean to growing up? Well, you know, growing up in Chicago, particularly if you're of a certain age, as I am, in my mid-50s, when you were a kid and you're coming from the South Side and you're going to um, field trips downtown, you know, the Art Institute or whatever, it was always a point of pride when the school bus rolled down Columbus Avenue and you could look a block over across Grand Park and see the Ebony Jet Building. And it had that atop it, the famed Ebony Jet magazine icons. And at night, they lit them up. And, you know, it was, um, it was a point of pride, you know, for the city and for African-Americans in the city, particularly those of us who, uh, which is almost all of us, whose journey through their parents or grandparents to the north was a part of the Great Migration. And here was a magazine that chronicled not only that journey, but the successes that African-Americans had throughout the country, you know, in the wake of that. So... It was fantastic. So now it's funny now, I went to school at Columbia College uh, just down the street from there. And I'd been in the lobby of the building when I was in in college in the 80s, but I'd never seen the entire building. And so I wanted to see it. So I can't remember, but somehow we got in there in 2013 and it was just as advertised from people who I knew that had worked there, that the build, that the interiors of the building were absolutely unchanged. Johnson specifically designed and pushed for everything that was in that. If if it wore out, he got it remade the same way. The ostrich feather wallpaper, if it wore out, he'd get some more. So it was maintained that way. Just a fantastic piece of 70s interior design. Yeah, it's so remarkable that it was frozen in time. When I was looking at your 2013 photographs of it, it looks very much like the way that the original photographs were published. I have been looking at the book that you wrote that was published this year, Southern Exposure, The Overlooked Architecture of Chicago South Side. And when you describe some of the buildings in the book, you speak really acutely about your favorite architectural moments. My favorite out of your favorites is in Ingram House by Roger Marjoram. You describe that spiral staircase that as soon as you enter, shoots you down all the way to the basement, to the bar and is obscured from the living room with that curved court and steel wall. I wanted to ask you, what are your favorite architectural moments in the Ebony Jet Building? Oh, man. Well, you know, the test kitchen, above all, I think, 
and, 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 and there's, a, there's a lot of competition. But what's interesting about it is that pattern that's all over the cabinets, almost like it looks like a Peter Max dress almost. It, it, it is applied to the cabinets without leaving a seam, right? So it looks like a fire hose sprayed it on. I mean, I mean the, the acrylic <laughs> that they use and, and how they used it. So just, just the workmanship that's there. I, I love that best space first. Nothing off the rack, nothing off the shelf. Everything is made in that entire building, you know, made to order and made to his specifications. It's fantastic. That's true. And I was going to ask you about that because you've been a longtime advocate of protecting Chicago's important mid-century architecture through landmark status. You're familiar with the obstacles just as you're driven by the urgency to overcome these obstacles. I was reading how the interior can't be landmarked because it's difficult to monitor changes to carpets and wallpaper. Can you speak to some of these obstacles in the preservation process? Why did the Ebony Test Kitchen not qualify for the National Register of Historic Places? And why should it have? You know, it really should have. And I think that if there had been a move to preserve the kitchen, place it on the National Register back in 13, I think it would have been an easier lift. But, uh, but by the time people really began to pay attention to the building, uh, most of it had been demolished. What was significant about the Ebony Test Kitchen and the recipes that came out of it? Well, you know, you know, first, you know, again, the design, just that alone does it. But also, here was a kitchen, you know, during the 70s, where if, you, if, you're, if you're a Black like me, and, you know, at some point, your mother tried a recipe out of, out of that kitchen that was published either in Jet or Ebony, I can't remember which one now, or the cookbooks that came out of that. Uh, you know, it, you know it, it's kind of hard to say this without sounding funny, but some of the, the recipes... You know, as as African American and you know in, in this country, you know you, you you're always having a foot in each world, right? Your world, and then you know as much as you can the assimilated world that you have to be a, be a part of, and that speaks to all parts of our experience, right? Which is why people, you know, they uh, they come out of church and they end up singing opera or or you know that, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, all, all of that, you know, that that duality of existence is all there, and and the recipes you know, in some cases represented that duality. I mean, it, it was really an attempt to, you know, and I struggle with the word elevate, but it was to widen the variety of things that African-Americans were eating. But yet it wasn't a case of people mimicking white recipes. It was really a, a chance to do what we do, to, uh, to, to, to take this broader variety of recipes and things but still make it us, right? Still make it us. That that aspect of crowdsourcing it from the culture, from the people, I think is very significant compared to some of the other magazines, which, for example, Bon Appetit has been accused rightly of taking context out of a lot of the non-white recipes and being out of touch with the culture and the readers. Exactly. And, and, and you know, that was part of the DNA of Ebony Magazine. I mean, some of the most... If you get if you get, get a chance to see old copies of Ebony, some of the most fascinating things are the letters to the editor, which are really a conversation between the magazine and its readership. And people will say, I didn't like that cover, or I did love that cover, and they will either answer them back in that issue or answer them back in the next issue. Uh, so this idea that it wasn't just a product that you put out to the masses, but there really was a dialogue, a conversation, a relationship between the magazine and its readers in the kitchen reflected that. 
this is the last question I have for you. It's kind of a bigger question, but it ties to the broader work that you're doing with uh, adding these precedents, these buildings that are architecturally significant, important, culturally relevant to the discourse where they've been uh, not included. I wanted to ask you with the Ebony Test Kitchen specifically, but also if you wish to, in a broader way, speak to this, when you study, document, photograph, and write about buildings like this, what is your dream for the future of the building, both in its cultural legacy and its physical state? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I guess there, there are multiple outcomes that I'm looking for in the, you know, with the book and other things as well is that you know certainly i want that building or that neighborhood or that streetscape to be looked at and thought of and considered in the same way that we consider parts of Hyde Park or uh, Mies van der Rohe or Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in on, on Forest Avenue and Oak Park i want the dialogue of architecture to include these places as well uh, that's one two is that with that i want people to understand that there are people in these neighborhoods right who are living and taking care of and loving these buildings. I want them, and I should say us, because I'm, I'm a Southsider as well, included in that conversation. So when we're talking about great buildings in Chicago and where they are and what should happen to them. I want Southsiders and Westsiders included in that conversation. And, and, and it's, it's better than it was. I mean, it, it wasn't like it was when I was a kid in the 70s, where City Hall will unfurl a plan and you just had to like it or lump it, right? You could tear down your house for an expressway, all that kind of stuff. So things are open. But developers and the city have realized that you can create a process that looks open. I had a charrette. I had a town hall meeting. And you can still do what you want to do. And I, and I want that to stop as well. I remember, I remember very vividly when the Cubs, Chicago Cubs, wanted to expand Wrigley Field. And the neighbors had just as much say in that expansion and how it was going to be and where there was going to be night games and when they're going to be played as the team itself. And I thought to myself, now, see, that would never happen in a black and brown neighborhood. They would never give that much agency to black and brown people, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's the thing that I want to change out of all this. Back when it was first completed in 1971, Johnson Publishing Building was the only high-rise in Chicago designed by Black architect or an architect of color. Today, in 2020, Johnson Publishing Building is still the only high-rise in Chicago designed by Black architect or an architect of color. Bonnie McDonald, who is the CEO and president of Landmarks Illinois, can tell us more. The success of the Johnson family is articulated in the building that John Matusami designed for them. So to have a Black architect design a building that was situated on Michigan Avenue spoke to the fact that the Johnsons were a part of the elite group of people who could afford to build a building on Michigan Avenue, one of the, the toniest addresses, if you'd say that, or the most significant addresses in Chicago are on Michigan Avenue. I think the work of Matusami, uh, his work has not necessarily been celebrated in the city of Chicago. Because we celebrate SOM, I'm sure you have studied many SOM buildings around the world and Adrian Smith buildings. And, you know, their legacy is shameful because Matusami was the only person who graduated from IIT in his graduating class that was not hired by SOM. 
And thankfully, he was able to join, you know, join together with, you know, Dubin and Dubin, who, who were Jewish architects uh, who were ostracized by the, you know, the white architecture community. The building obviously doesn't host Ebony and Jet anymore. It exchanged hands to Columbia College. And then in 2017, largely thanks to the efforts of Landmarks Illinois, the exterior of the building received landmark status. But you can't help but feel that the cultural significance of the building just dissipated. Interior designation is very complicated because many owners don't want to cement the interior for perpetuity. And the city is rarely interested in doing that against an owner's wishes because it really is seen as uh, taking a significant amount of their property rights. That was an uphill battle to try to try to get the building's interior designated. In what I would call a traditional preservation practice, which, which I am a critic of actually, we typically think of just the exterior of the building and the architect that designed it, rarely the people who you have used it over time. And the interiors that we're talking about are literally where people spend their lives. The people who worked in this building spent their days eight hours, 10 hours, however long, for 30 years, 40 years working in this place. Uh, so those interiors were meant to be inspirational. They were, you know, they were meant to be empowering. Um, you know, for those of us who understood the significance of those interiors to the overall design, uh, it was very bittersweet because yes, the building is still there. That is somewhat of a triumph because Matusini's work could have been demolished. You said the cultural significance dissipated, that you've articulated it absolutely correctly. Shortly after the landmark status, a real estate company called 3LR purchased the building. They'd worked in collaboration with the city and Landmarks Illinois to get the landmark status. It also had some incentives for them. And they ultimately wanted to convert the building to apartment units. Most of the interiors at this point had been ripped out. One of the only things that remained was the test kitchen. And Lee Bay informs Landmarks Illinois that the test kitchen was about to be demolished. Landmarks Illinois, in this very impressive, quick-on-their-feet mission, swooped in a few weeks before demolition got somebody to measure, catalog, and document the kitchen, and assembled a group of volunteers over the course of a weekend to dismount the kitchen. The pieces were moved to storage, and a very meticulous RFP request for proposals was written to find the new owners of the test kitchen. This is where the test kitchen crosses paths with Catherine Piccoli, president of MOFAD, Museum of Food and Drink in New York. We started working on the exhibition African slash American Making the Nation's Table in 2017. That story in particular about African-American contributions to American cuisine was something that we had been wanting to take on for a while. Dr. Jessica Harris, um, who's the foremost expert on African diaspora cuisine, we said, you know, Dr. Harris, you are the person to, to lead this with us. And thankfully she agreed. So we started work back in 2017. It was actually February of 2019. We were on Amtrak from New York to DC when Peter, our former executive director, got this email. And it was, I think there was a New York Times article saying that like the famous Ebony Test Kitchen is available for $1. And we were like, what? This would be perfect as a major piece of this exhibition. You know, and so they sent us the RFP and we put together a proposal and they chose our proposal, which was super exciting. The opening of the show had to be postponed due to the COVID lockdown. 
but when it's open, we're all going to be able to walk through the Ebony Test Kitchen in all its jiggly pizzazz. Our plan ultimately is to travel this because part of the agreement with Landmarks is that this will be on display for five years. So also thinking through how we can take the kitchen apart and then put it back together and travel it around the country. As usual, I'm going to leave you with a gumball. If you're an architect, gumball is a widget in your computer program that allows you to move, scale, and rotate things. Can't live without gumball. If you're not an architect, and actually more welcome to be listening to this podcast, you know gumball as a bright ball of gum. Something to chew on. Today's gumball is the pass-through window at the Ebony Test Kitchen. That's that long rectangular window in the wall that allows direct visual access between the food editors and the fashion editors, art directors, designers, writers, guests, celebrities, and presidents. A pass-through window can connote a place where servants and cooks serve food to a dining area. But at the Ebony Test Kitchen, the pass-through window reclaims its agency. It makes the test kitchen the best seat in the house, and it also facilitates feedback. Charlotte Draper would leave different versions of recipes on the pass-through counter with ballots so that her colleagues could cast their editorial votes. Charlotte Lyons' recipes on the pass-through counter would lure Mike Tyson and Luther Vandross to come hang out with her in the test kitchen. In this way, the curatorial vision of the food department aligns through the pass-through window with the larger cultural project of the publication. That's it for this episode. Thank you to my five guests, as well as Barbara Karen, Joe Slazek, and Chris Eng for the material they provided. You should check out our Instagram where you'll find photos, interview clips, and favorite recipes. Also, if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. The podcast cover art is by Yu Cha Guo, the transition music is by Lucas Wynn, and the full host theme song is by Kehan Kaser. Special thanks to technical assistance of Ariana Deri. Thanks for listening. Bye.